Hi everyone, welcome to my podcast, Life and Money with Christine Tay. My name is Christine Tay. I'm the founder of Tay Financial Coaching, where I help people transform their relationship with money. I am also a LinkedIn coach, helping people with their personal brand on LinkedIn. I also love talking about life and self-growth, since spirituality is an important part of my life. In this podcast, you will hear talks about money, social media, and life. I hope you enjoy the episodes. Please leave a review if you do. I'd really appreciate that. You can check my services and LinkedIn online course by going to my website at www.tefinancialcoaching. That's T-E-H-financialcoaching.com. Thank you. Today's episode is a live stream interview with mortgage broker Russell McDonald. Russell has been in the industry since 1991 and has a vast knowledge of the mortgage industry. In this episode, we talk about the different topics of the mortgage industry like the how the market has changed post-COVID, how rates have changed post-COVID, and how people who went into forbearance of their mortgage are affected. I learned so much from this episode and I hope you will too. Enjoy. Thank you. Hi, Russell. Thanks for being here. Hi, Christine. Thanks for having me. Yeah. Hi, everyone. I see a couple of people watching now. So we're live on um, LinkedIn, Facebook, and YouTube. So, Russell, thank you so much for joining me. This is actually a very interesting topic because, you know, mortgage is hot now and then with the COVID. And then so there's just a, a lot to talk about. So it's a pretty heavy topic. So everyone feel free to ask any questions you want from Russell. And he's, um, you know, he's an expert with the mortgage stuff. So why don't you... um introduce yourself Russell um you know just let people know what you do and in what state do you serve sure so my name is Russell McDonald I'm with WiMAC Capital we are mortgage brokers in the San Francisco Bay Area uh, my company is 30 years old and we serve California and Utah right now um, we have been in other states before and we'll be expanding back out again at some point um, and so most of what we do is residential real estate loans. Uh, my experience doing this literally since the end of 1991 is when I started here. And I started actually working as a loan officer in 1992. And so I've learned a lot about the way the housing markets and the finance markets work um, because I've been doing this since even before the mortgage industry had FICO scores. So I've been able to see how a lot of things have changed. Um, something that you probably don't know about me, Christine, is I also, back in 1994, I started a software company to create tools for the mortgage industry that didn't exist. Mm. And we've primarily been using two of those tools to make almost all of our revenue since 1998. And what we came up with is so unique. I've actually been awarded six patents for oh. the software systems and business methods that I've created to make getting a mortgage easier and better. So awesome. I'm very old school when it comes to, to things here and I've been around a long time. Yeah, that's awesome. That's awesome. So, so I know you've been in business for a very, very long time. So if you can summarize in one sentence, like what, what has 
what has changed or like the from whatever back then 1994 to now like how how would you um describe it um it, it doesn't even look like the same business at this point the technology <laughs> has completely changed they've tried to use technology to replace the experts in the transaction and the companies that are most successful don't try to get rid of the high cost experts that they have at the table, but they use the technology to enhance what they can do and make it so that that expert can do exponentially more business. Yeah. So what was the highest and the lowest mortgage rate you've seen since 19, you said 1994, right? Uh, 1994 is when I started my software company. 1991 oh, is when one. I started okay. here. Yeah. So 1991 till so, so now. Um, you know, back when I just got into this, we were seeing a paper 30 year fixed rates at about 9% with a wow. two point cost. And wow. people were excited that we were down <laughs> into single digits again. Yeah, crazy. Yeah, yeah. Wow. And then in 1993, when we had that big, big wave of refinancing and everybody thought we got mm -hmm. the lowest rates ever, those rates were in the sevens. So, you know, we've had every five years or so, we just have another big rush where we go down below the previous mm -hmm. lows. And this is no exception, you know, prior to right now, the absolute lowest we had in interest rates was about three weeks before the presidential election in 2016. Mm -hmm. um, and rates started edging back up towards the election when it looked like things were a little bit less stable than we thought. And then the economic markets were taken completely by surprise with the results mm -hmm. of the election. So... 60 days after rates were probably up a full percent higher than than they were mm -hmm. right before it's just crazy how fast things can move so cool. the highest close to 10 percent the lowest we've seen i've got lenders right now that are closing 15 year fixed rates at 1.99 percent with wow, some hefty costs but very yeah good. yeah yeah um, okay okay go ahead. so what what usually determines the mortgage rate? Like what should people like look out for that, that kind of will trigger the mortgage rate going up or mortgage rate going down? You know, I had a, I would have had a much better answer prior to March. Um, because since then, when you've seen, usually we've, we've tracked up and down along with mm -hmm. the 10 year treasuries. Mm -hmm. um, our rates haven't gone as low as they should based on where the treasury rates are right now, because none of the rules apply and it's just crazy where things are right now but in general when you see um the treasury markets doing better and those rates dropping on those days mortgage rates tend to go lower or higher with that market mm -hmm. yeah so what what really determines the the mortgage rate because like it's it's a it's pretty much like lending i finally made yeah. it's the one that, yeah mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So it's a price. It's it's what they're getting for the mortgage-backed securities. So mm -hmm. people are buying pools of of mortgage-backed securities, and their appetite for rates going up and down basically determine how the lenders price things. But you know, right now, when when the lenders are so uncertain about what their future is and what's going on, um, sometimes there are things that are just outliers. You know. Um, I had I had a, a loan that I was trying to price out for somebody about two and a half months ago, mm -hmm. and they were trying to get a cash out home loan, and literally mm -hmm. from one day to the next, the closing costs went up by thirty five thousand dollars for that loan, 
because the lender got scared when things were unstable. And when the oh. CARES Act came out and made it so that lenders were obligated to grant forbearance for up to six months with no mm -hmm. questions asked, um, mm -hmm. all, all that had to happen is the client had to say, we mm -hmm. are in a hardship because of COVID and they had to give forbearance. But mm -hmm. those lenders had commitments to the people that they were selling the loans to when they were servicing it to make those payments to that party. So they'd mm -hmm. still have to keep making the payments even when the client didn't pay them. Got it. Exactly. That that's a pretty high risk. So so now mm -hmm. with the COVID, you know, like we're already a couple months in into this virus, and then I don't know when it's gonna end. But so how how has the housing market changed? Like like the the interest rate went down. And then like, and then I feel like, I mean, you get different opinions from realtors, right? It's like, oh, the mortgage, the market is really doing good. Like I'm move, moving to Las Vegas, Nevada. And then they all say, yeah, the market is still very good. There's still offers. So I'm sure mm -hmm. Bay Area is probably still the, the same. So it's like, what, what have you noticed? It really that is crazy because um, mm -hmm. we don't have as much inventory. They've really, they've really clamped down on the rules for realtors when it comes to showing homes. Mm -hmm. um, in California, you can't have a regular open house but you can take appointments to walk people through two at a time. Mm -hmm. um, and so some lenders or some realtors have tried to set up, you know, a, a window on a Saturday where they book eight or 10 appointments one after the other so mm -hmm. they can effectively have a private open house for those people in mm -hmm. 15 minute intervals. Um, and it's surprising because you would think so many people are out of work. So many people lost their jobs, which means they can't get a mortgage. Um, and you would think that that would be causing things to drop off. But with the limited inventory, inventory, mm -hmm. if a house is priced right, it still goes really fast. And we're mm -hmm. still seeing lots of competition and people that um, are are worried that with because of the scarcity are bidding the prices up. Mm, and it. we don't, you know, in the last financial crisis, uh, it was basically yeah. housing related. Yeah. We had a situation where people were losing their homes left and right. So they had to sell and they had to sell now and they didn't have a choice. Well, right now, everybody that's in trouble, mm -hmm. if their loan is owned by Fannie Mae or Freddie Mac, or if it's a VA or FHA loan, they can just call up the lender and get six months, no payments. So they're not in a hurry to sell. And you know what happens at the end of that six months, if mm -hmm. they still can't make their payments, they get another six months and the lender is not allowed to say no in most cases. Mm. You know, if, if it's the lender's own money, the rules are different, but under the CARES Act, anything that, that the government has a link to in the financing, mm -hmm. they're obligated to give up to those 12 months. And then after yeah. that, if they still can't make the payments, it would take the lender about another six months to foreclose. So people that are in trouble are looking forward a year and a half and saying, I'm probably going to be able to make it work before then. And so they're not panic selling. Oh, I see. I see. So, so they're going to, they can literally stay not paying anything for another year, right? Before the lender mm -hmm. is actually can legally kick them out of the house and then say, and, and in California, it takes about six months to actually foreclose. Wow. So, so they, <laughs> But then yeah, I, guess, I guess they can literally live for free. But how is that going to affect their credit, though? It would ruin their credit. <laughs> but then they're yeah. probably like, hey, I got free rent. <laughs> well, if if someone's that desperate and they need that year and a half to pull things together, you know, let's say it's a business owner that's been devastated, but they mm -hmm. still know how to run a business. They know what to do. And yeah. 
And if their current business crashes, they can start another business. They may be back on their feet in less than 18 months and able to bring everything current and be fine. But you're right. Yeah. They're Okay. So while they're in forbearance, the lender is not allowed to, to mark them late on their credit. Mm. Now, the credit report does say it's in forbearance. So that's other problems. You know, we've got rates in many cases below 3% right now. And mm -hmm. people that are in forbearance or have been in forbearance usually don't qualify for those rates. Mm, because exactly. it's a risk for the lender. And the lender doesn't want to be making a loan to someone that's saying, I can't make ah, my payments right now. Got it. Got it. So if you have a forbearance, it doesn't really serve you later on when you look for another loan, right? Because it will be on your record, right? It makes it harder. But again, because this is federally mandated, they mm -hmm. came out with some new rules about a month ago to mm -hmm. where after you bring your forbearance current mm -hmm. and make another three payments, they'll basically look the other way and you can get a normal financing. So, you know, this is, this is a disaster. And mm -hmm. so they're taking a look at it from the standpoint of once, once they get back on their feet, if they put everything behind them and shown that they're still able to meet all mm -hmm. their obligations, mm -hmm. then we no longer penalize them. Now I was worried that they were going to um, penalize those people for a lot longer. Mm -hmm. Let me give you an example. Back in 2007, it was possible for you to walk away from your house and file bankruptcy and buy a new home in less than two years mm -hmm. with a paper credit and loans. Mm -hmm. Millions of people did a strategic default in that time, thinking that in two years later, they'd be back on their feet and buying another house or buying back the same house in some cases. Mm -hmm. And so the rules changed because so many people were taking advantage of it and it stretched out to as much as seven years being required post foreclosure or post bankruptcy to get back into an a paper loan. Um, now it's, it's come back down a little bit. It's about four years for most loan programs for some it's three, but still before the last financial crisis, um, I literally had some people who walked away from homes, filed bankruptcy, and less than 18 months later, we're getting approved for a new home. Mm -hmm. So that's why I was expecting the rules to, to stretch out longer when it comes to that. But the way they're applying it right now, three months after bringing your forbearance current, you can usually qualify for the best financing. Got it. Okay, cool. So, so like the, the rates I noticed, like, you know, it, it, it went down, right? When, because mm -hmm. of COVID. So, so tell us more, like, um, yeah, like how has the rates been affected? I mean, like I've never seen, I mean, I've never seen in two point something percent. You said 1.99% now I was like. Now the 1.99%, like, that's a 15 year fix yeah. and it costs quite a bit to get it. So, you know, if you have oh, a $400,000 loan, oh, okay. you're going to have, I don't know, on a $400,000 loan, you're going to have ten dollars to $12,000 in closing costs to get it. Is what? that worth it? Well, it's 1.99%. You're going to make up that money pretty quick. Now, my preference is usually to find a, a tier where the bank will pay all the closing costs for you in exchange for a higher rate. Now, if that so, higher rate is lower than what you're paying, it mm -hmm. still makes sense. So why, why does it cost more? Is it because they're buying down the points to 1.99? Yeah. They're, they're basically oh, paying okay. points plus closing costs to get the rate lower. Okay, and the lender's so, offering a special to make it okay. be within reach. So what if they're not paying any anything points to lower it? What would be the regular 15-year uh, mortgage? Um, I had a 15-year fixed earlier this month that we did 
with paying all the closing costs. So no points, no fees mm -hmm, at 2.75%. Mm -hmm. Okay. Um, yeah, it's still pretty good. It's fantastic. Yeah. yeah. I mean, those <laughs> rates have been unheard of. I know, um, I know. That's like gotta gotta get a refinancing or buy a house soon. So, so okay. Mm -hmm. So, what do you see? I mean, with the coronavirus and and um, how do you see that affecting our housing market and the interest rate for a few more months till beginning of next year? Like, because you have so much experience. Like, if you, I mean, mm -hmm. like I know you know you can, you don't have a crystal ball, but what do you? How do you see the market going the next couple of months while we still figure because things people, out? Because yeah. people aren't getting desperate. I don't think you're going to have the panic selling and the price drops. Now, I would imagine there are parts of the country where things are a lot more tense is on the housing front. Um, you know, around here, we, we had what, 40 million people unemployed at one point. Now it's down to about 20 million. Um, but the people that are generally unemployed are lower end employees hourly salaried workers um, here around the Bay area. I found very few people among my clients that are actually furloughed or laid off in any way. Um, mm. So I don't think that prices are, are going to get drastically affected. Um, a little bit further out, say Antioch and Brentwood, we've seen some things kind of quiet down a little bit. It's not going up as fast, but it mm. still seems to be going up. Um, so I don't think we're going to have the negativity on, on price also in part because interest rates are so low that mm -hmm. it's more accessible. So mm -hmm. when that interest rate is below 3%, you know, it's, it's one of those things where people can afford more house. I had a couple who closed a loan just last week who purchased a home with a 30 year fixed rate at 2.759% and they didn't pay any points for it. Now they had their normal closing costs with the purchase, mm -hmm. but you know, that's something to where, you know, they were talking to me about possibly paying down faster. And could I give them the, the schedule if they wanted to pay it off in 15 years instead of 30. And what I said mm -hmm. is with the rate this low, pay everything else first, because this is a super low rate plus it's tax deductible. And if you have other things, you know, their kids are getting to the point that they might be going off to school and things like that. And I said, save your money right now. Um, when you have more money in the bank, sure, if you want to throw more money at this, you can, but there really is no reason to because this payment is so low, you guys can make it easily and just mm -hmm. skate on by for the next yeah. 30 years. Yeah. So, Russell, what, what do you think triggered the, the interest rate to go down? All of the, the fear and the, the instability in the economic markets. Um, and if you remember, we had um, the the stock markets just getting decimated three or four months ago. Mm -hmm. And so a lot of money was going into bonds, but the real play here, the reason that things are going so low and mm -hmm. so hard is all of the money that the government and the fed is pumping into the economy. You know, in the feds minutes yesterday, they basically said, we will do whatever it takes to get this economy back to full employment. And we will keep rates low until that happens. Mm. Um, and part of what they're doing to keep it low is they're not just buying treasuries, which keeps that low because they've got more demand now because they're paying more money. Um, but they're also buying mortgage-backed securities and they're buying billions of dollars a day in mortgage-backed securities. So that's also keeping those rates low. Got it. And Fannie Mae's economists 
predict that the average 30-year fixed rate next year mm -hmm. will be below 3%. That's the average. Okay. So it's we're, we're going to have low rates for quite a while unless mm -hmm. things drastically change. Got it. Got it. For a while, meaning for another year or two, you think? At least. Okay. Um, okay. I wouldn't be surprised if it takes three years to really get the economy back on track. Got it. So, Got it. so they want to keep it low. That way it encourages more people to keep buy mm -hmm. a home. And then um, so so even with the layoff and the unemployment, and then mm -hmm. I guess um, you don't see that affecting the market too much because then they, even if they can afford, like because there's forbearance and stuff like that. So mm -hmm. they're not like desperate to sell it anyway, even though they don't have a job because they don't have a mo big mortgage to pay, right? So it doesn't Correct. affect it as much. So, but then what if like it's, 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 it's over like you know the the year is oh, i don't know six months is over and then they don't have a job yet then i guess they're just gonna keep staying there till like they get kicked out by the lender and then they're gonna have to find a rent but then they, they might have a hard time yeah uh-huh um they could but if that happens to millions of people then they're not going to have a hard time finding rent rental units because there are so many other people that are going to be in the same situation. Mm -hmm. The landlords are going to have to take a look and say, okay, yeah. why did this happen? Can I get comfort that it's not going to happen again? Now, this is dangerous for the landlord too. You know, um, they were yeah, talking about exactly. here in California staying evictions for up to a year, which means yeah, tenants yeah. could not pay rent, mm -hmm. um, which would mean the landlords wouldn't have the money to pay their mortgages. So the landlord would then go into forbearance on that. And it just, it becomes a very vicious cycle. Um, mm -hmm. So landlords aren't going to want to rent to people who've shown a predilection to not making their payments on time. But if they can see why it happened, you know, let's say they were a restaurant owner and they've been forced to shut down yet again. And so mm -hmm. that's why they're not making their payments. Mm -hmm. Well, when everything recovers, people are going to eat. That that's a good business to be in when they're allowed to yeah, be in business. Exactly, exactly. Yeah. But then restaurants, are, I mean, like some of them are closing because then I guess they haven't really adjusted to, to the new mm -hmm. COVID. But hopefully, like the ones that can still to dine out, take you know, take out delivery, they're still surviving. So okay, um I'm looking but at some of them are just barely okay. surviving. Yeah, yeah. John Lim is asking, please talk importance of emergency cash reserve. So, yeah, I cannot stress the importance of that. Of, of mm -hmm. course, it, it's very important. But I mean, you know, like Russell says, sometimes when you get laid off, sometimes people just don't have it. And then like, and, and you know, you try your best to help those people. But sometimes they come to me too late as well. So, so, but then I cannot stress it enough. You need to have emergency cash reserve at least three months, six months or a year, depending on your situation. And then, and then how marketable your, you know, your uh, skills are in, in finding a job. So if you feel it's going to take you about a year to find another job, then you need at least a year of uh, emergency cash reserve. If you're, if you're very high in demand, your career, especially if you're in Silicon Valley, you have a very, you know, marketable skill, then you know, you might just get a job in a month or less than a month right away. So in Silicon Valley, I think it's not that hard as long as you have a very marketable skill. So hopefully that, um, oh, John is asking, should people take money out of 401k to build emergency cash reserve and buy a house? So John, um, um, I don't see the point like you taking, you're taking money from 401k to build like emergency cash reserve. I mean, like that leaving the 401k is already, 
your future savings. So I wouldn't take money out just for the emergency cash reserve. It's like um to buy a house. Yeah, I mean maybe maybe you, you don't know if that's a good thing or not, right? Because like but right now they're um they're able to actually um you know that now the government's actually saying you know you don't have to pay the ten percent penalty as of now. So 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 we have to see the overall picture. Like does it make sense and and everything. So I cannot just answer uh, off the bat generally. So it all depends on the person's individual situation. We have to look at the overall picture. I mean, what do you think, Russell? Do you have an opinion? No, I agree that? with that. If if someone doesn't have cash reserves, mm -hmm. I would much rather see them build up that emergency fund before yes. they pay off the rest of their debt. Mm -hmm. um, sometimes people count on a large credit line to get them through rocky mm -hmm. situations. Um, I had clients who, in the last crisis, had million-dollar HELOCs on their homes because mm -hmm. they had a lot of equity. Well, they went to draw down on those when they got in trouble and found that mm -hmm. the bank had closed the line down. Mm -hmm. um, oh. So you cannot count on credit to be your reserves. So exactly, it's not the reserve; lot, it's the credit. It's, the debt, <laughs> it's build not your money first, so that you can serve yeah. that debt if you get in exactly. trouble. Yeah, it's then not your money. Paying down the debt. That's yeah. right. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yep. Yeah. And if someone is in the situation where they are considering liquidating a 401k for their cash reserves, I wouldn't do that because the 401k is always there. Yeah. So if they get in real trouble, they can get at that money without yep. pulling it out exactly. in advance. And someone that's in that situation, I would not recommend they buy a house. Exactly. They need to be exactly. more <laughs> ahead of the game yes. before they commit to something like that. Exactly. Exactly. And then, yeah, if they have to take money from a 401k, then that probably means they're not in the financial situation to buy a house again like i don't want to just say generally, generally i have yeah. to, i have to see how uh, each individual uh, situation but generally yes i mean like if you are if you are um generally if you already have uh, enough cash reserve you have a good financial standing then you're ready to buy a house and then some people like i also have to ask the question try to figure out like what is the real motivation for the person to want to buy a house and usually it's because for status symbol or whatever like you know that that might not be the that might be the wrong reason and then sometimes there it, it buying a house just doesn't make sense where they are at in life as well so mm -hmm. so i need to see like the overall where they're at in their life like how they are good doing financially and then see if that even makes sense okay so um yeah so so um i know we already talked about this like you know so people who's going on forbearance on their mortgage like how are they getting affected now and then for when you say forbearance that's like they completely stop paying or they just lowering the payment right now usually people that go into forbearance are completely ceasing their payments that's what they're allowed to do under the guidelines but one thing that some lenders are doing is if you even call them up and ask them what the mm -hmm. procedures are for forbearance, mm -hmm. they just put you in the program. And <laughs> so your credit report will say you're in forbearance, even if you've made all the payments in the meantime. Mm -hmm. And so that's been a big problem because if you're in forbearance, you can't refinance. Well, they know that you can't refinance if you're in forbearance. So if you're yeah. paying them a high rate and they want to keep that servicing on their portfolio, they can push you into forbearance if you've made any kind of a request that they can mm -hmm. justify saying you asked for it. And oh. that stops you from refinancing. Good. So it's just weird. So so we this home is under chase. And when we called them a forbearance, they told us like it's not being offered. <laughs> is okay. that is that, I mean not so for example, for... my father's home loan is with Chase right now. Okay. Um, we actually originally did it probably eight years ago. 
and we did it with MetLife, and subsequently they sold it to Chase. That's a Fannie Mae or Freddie Michael, and that was a conventional loan when we did it. So yeah. if he called and asked for forbearance, they would be obligated to give it to him. But uh, Chase is a mega bank. So <laughs> they have billions of dollars of home loans on yeah. their books. That's their yeah. money that they took from depositors to, mm -hmm. to make loans. So they are probably not obligated, if it's their money, to offer the forbearance. Got it. Got they it. probably would, though, if you insisted. Um, you might have to hang up and call again. A lot of times when you're dealing with financial services companies um, or credit issues or anything, sometimes yeah. you just get someone who's not going to help you. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> that's true. And, that's true. you know, that's if, if someone, if I had a client that needed that, um, I, I'd tell them to just call every day, get a different yeah. person every time because they have thousands of people answering those phones. Yeah, the chance yeah. that that person is going to remember you. Now, you have to be nice to each one. You can't <laughs> argue with them. You can't fight. You can't swear at them because they record the calls. And mm -hmm. then suddenly the person might listen to what you told the last guy. Mm -hmm. But yep. if you, you know, there are genuinely people at those companies that want to help you. And if they've got a way to make it happen, they would. So I just say hang up and call again. Yeah. Yeah. That's like Comcast. Keep calling till you get the right person. <laughs> It's ridiculous. It's actually ridiculous. It's, it's ridiculous with Comcast because like there's no competition, and they're like they try to jack up the price on you, and then you have to call to have another promotional stuff. Okay, yeah. John has one more question. With rates so low, if someone has no mortgage, do you recommend they borrow now? That would depend if they have a need for the money. Um, if they have no savings and they wanted to borrow money at these low rates, that's fine. Now cash out mortgages cost a little bit more than a regular mortgage because it's higher risk to the lender. Um, but you can still get, I've, I've got someone looking at a cash out mortgage on a 15 year fixed and they're still below 3%. Um, so it just depends if you, if you have the income to make the payments and you have a reason to want the money in the bank, that's fine. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So, Rasa, can you explain what cash out mortgage is? Is this the same as refinancing? Like, for example, you have that equity and you refinance so you can get some cash back, or is this is this different? Yeah. So, if when let's say you owe four hundred thousand dollars and your house mm -hmm. is worth a million dollars, real common for the Bay Area. Mm -hmm. Okay. Um, if you just want to refinance and borrow the four hundred thousand dollars or four hundred two, four hundred three, whatever you need to cover your closing costs, that's considered a rate and term refinance. And so those are offered with the best terms. Mm -hmm. um, if you want to take out 500000 you still have plenty of equity. That's 50% loan to value. Mm -hmm. um, yep. But it is considered a higher risk because you're withdrawing cash from your home. Um, so they they bump the interest rate up slightly. Or they oh, bump really? up the cost. Okay. Yes, it's oh, more so, so you're taking more and more cash out, then they will actually bump it up. Yeah. Okay. Got it. Now, if you do a cash out home loan above 510-400 for counties that are high cost counties, mm -hmm. then the penalties get really high. Um, oh, okay. The higher the cash between, out, then okay. Between, well, no, it's it's because if you go over 510-400 up to 765-600, there's an additional, basically point and a quarter minimum additional hit for the cash out. So. On a $700,000 loan, a point and a quarter, that's $10,000 in closing costs to get that cash out. Mm. So in order to do that, usually when people need to cash, they raise their interest rate higher to try to get the bank to cover it. 
but sometimes there isn't enough room left on the table for them to cover all the closing costs and it may be very expensive to get the cash got it so so closing costs um you know when you buy either a resale okay so uh, let's talk about the different type of closing costs so there's mm -hmm. there's the brand new home there's resale home and refinancing so mm -hmm. tell me what are what does those closing costs really pay for like they're like so expensive how many what how, okay let's start with the brand new home and then the resale before we do the refinance of an existing mm -hmm. home so what does the closing costs cover and then usually they can get up to ten ten thousand depending on the value of the home so it just depends um, when it comes to the brand new homes part of the closing costs depend on first of all if the city or county has extra costs because of the subdivision or there are additional things that are being subsidized um, usually the closing costs for a new construction I found um, them to be lower because the builder negotiates with the title company to get lower than normal fees for the entire subdivision at once. And mm -hmm. since the builder used that title company to acquire the lot to begin with, the land, mm -hmm. um, they're already on the hook for the chain of title and everything. Mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. they can they can make it more economical. Um, what I generally tell your average first-time home buyer, let's say someone's buying a $500,000 home, um, they should plan on about 13,500 to 14,000 in total closing costs. Now that includes setting up their impound account for their reserves so they can pay their taxes and insurance monthly. Um, and it just it just ends up being about two and a half to two and three quarters percent in those cases. Now, mm -hmm. if they don't want to have the impound account, they can save some of the upfront costs, but it's still gonna be in that case, Mm -hmm. Six or $8,000 in hard costs that they have to come up with. So, okay. So to you set up have an escrow. pay it though. Oh, okay. So the escrow to some escrow account actually costs you money. <laughs> so better. It's not that it costs you money. Escrow. It's that you have to come up with, with money in advance. For example, I have someone right now who's refinancing that wants to keep an impound account, even though they don't need it. They have a ton of equity, but yeah. they don't want to think about their taxes when they come due. So we're going to close that loan in August mm -hmm. and they're going to have to come up with seven or eight months worth of property taxes right then. Because oh, November, so if, if we close in August, their first payment's not till October 1st. Got it. Okay. Well, on November 1st, that lender has to have six months in the account to pay it. And they'll oh, have only okay. gotten one payment from them. That's not the real problem though. The next installment is due February 1st. Mm -hmm. So on February 1st, they need six months again even though the space between November and February is only three months. So that's why they have to come up with eight months now, because otherwise in February, they won't have six. Mm -hmm. So right now is about the worst time of year to be refinancing and setting up an impound account because they're going to take the most. But that same person has already been paying into their impound account to the previous lender. They get all that money back. It just takes a few weeks. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah. That's why I don't know. I prefer, I think, well, I don't have an escrow account because like I, I, I'd rather mm -hmm. just manage my own money. So, so it doesn't really mm -hmm. cost, there's no additional fees. It's just more like, it's no additional okay. fees. It's that you have to spend the money before you want it. to. Got it. Okay. I got it. Okay. So, so, okay. So, so you said uh, it's about $8,000 hard money on closing costs. Like if you had to break that down, like that goes to title company that goes to. So your typical lender is going to have about a thousand dollars in their underwriting fees. Okay. Uh, here in the Bay Area, your appraisal might be $650. Mm -hmm. You're going to have um, 
tax service, which is a service that's going to watch you every year, make sure you paid your taxes, tell the lender if you didn't. Because mm -hmm. if you let it go five years and the state decides to foreclose on your home, their lien is senior mm -hmm. to the lender, which means mm -hmm. if the lender wants to maintain their security, they would have to pay off your taxes to mm -hmm. stay in first position. Yeah. So, Got it. so you're paying that company to tell on you if you skip your tax payments. Okay. Um, there's a flood service, which is cheap, but they make mm -hmm. sure that if your home is ever added to a, a high high risk flood zone, that mm -hmm. the lender is notified so they can make you get flood insurance. Mm -hmm. um, and then you have typical recording fees, transfer taxes, and things like that. On a $500,000 home, that could be another $1,000. Um, now, if it's in Oakland or, or Berkeley, that could mm -hmm. be five thousand dollars instead of a thousand because they have additional fees yeah um and then the title insurance and the escrow fees it just mm -hmm. all adds up so do you do they typically finance the closing costs like that's typical like they just add that to the no. loan in most cases you cannot add the closing costs to the loan mm -hmm. so the closing costs are in addition but the hard closing costs can be paid by the lender if you increase the interest rate the lender will give you a credit mm -hmm. to help do that um, for example, someone who I spoke with just yesterday is refinancing. They are getting a total of a $7,000 credit towards their closing mm -hmm. costs. Mm -hmm. Their closing costs, the hard costs are only going to be about 3000 on that loan. Mm -hmm. So they'll have $4,000, which mm -hmm. the lender is still going to give them. Mm -hmm. And they can use that to start to help pay their impound account they want to set up. Got it. Got it. Okay. So the, the brand new and resale home, the closing cost is probably similar. What about for a refinance home for, you know, for your current home? Like is the closing cost typically lower? Like what, what cost is not there in a refinance? Typically lower because when you refinance, you don't have to pay for owner's title insurance again. Mm. Now owner's title insurance is optional. You actually don't have to pay it when you buy a house, mm. but it would be foolish not to because if, if, someone showed up later claiming that they owned the house instead of the people who sold it to you, you want to have that coverage. Mm -hmm. You don't Got want to have unlimited liability there to where you could lose everything. Um, so that's the main cost. And, you know, owner's coverage on a half a million dollar home, that could be $1,500 of those closing costs. Mm -hmm. Likewise, the cost to refinance on the the title and escrow side is a little bit cheaper because they're relying on the insurance that you already had and and so they get a reduced premium mm -hmm. and it's less complicated so the escrow fees tend to be lower also got it got it. okay so um okay so it's, it's slightly lower for refinance and then okay so someone asked with rates oh no 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 actually that we re-asked that okay john asked again do you recommend people pay points to buy down the rate Almost never. Why is that? The reason banks offer you a cheaper rate in exchange for more money up front is they have calculated that in most cases, that's a better deal for the bank. Because they're going to end up refinancing anyway yeah. later, right? But you already so paid the points up if front. If you can hit the very bottom of the market and you know it's never going to go any lower than this, mm -hmm. then you pay a bunch of points and you'll save money. Mm -hmm. but yep. only time I've ever seen it actually work out in the client's favor, mm -hmm. maybe right now, but we won't know that for five or six years. Mm -hmm. In April of 2004, 
it would have been possible to pay extra to get a cheaper rate. Generally, it takes between five and seven years to make up whatever you pay. Okay. Mm -hmm. So yeah. that person would have broken even by 2009 or 2010. And rates were still higher then than they were in 2004. Okay. Mm -hmm. We were in an unprecedented crisis that had happened that had just made everything get bad. But that same person still would have refinanced in 2012 because rates were even cheaper. And in 2012, if you go forward five or six years, that person couldn't have broken even because in 2016, mm -hmm. rates were even cheaper. Mm -hmm. And that, that Monday, three weeks before the presidential election in 2016, when I had the lowest rates I'd ever had, if someone on that day had paid extra, they wouldn't have broken even yet and rates are already cheaper. Okay. So it almost never pencils out to have been in the client's best interest in hindsight. So, okay. With, with, when there's cost to refinancing, when is a good time to refinance? Like how low from your current mortgage is it worth it to refinance? Like how okay. do you determine and do the analysis? Because there's closing costs. It could be up to $10,000 closing costs, like right? few thousand dollars at least. So when is it worth it to refinance? And then like how much lower so, than your current rate? Anytime you can get a cheaper rate and have the bank pay all the costs for you. That's a good idea. You should at least do that. Okay. You can calculate out whether it's worth it to pay more costs for an even cheaper rate. Um, let me give you an example of, of one couple that I've been dealing with. When they bought their home, they talked about paying extra money to, okay. to refinance, or not to refinance, but to, to buy down the rate then because mm -hmm. rates had gone up. Um, yeah. Rates at that time were about five and three-eighths for them. Mm -hmm. yeah. Okay. Six months later, we refinanced them. No points, no fees at four and a half. Mm-hmm. So they wouldn't have made up the difference in those six months. Yeah. Six months later, we refinanced them again at 4%. Again, no points, no fees. Okay. Oh, so the, the lender absorbed everything. The lender pays the costs. Oh, and oh they so just, it doesn't cost anything. Wow. They that's just good. refinanced again at 3.08%. Yeah. Mm. No points, no fees. Mm, got it. Got it. So okay. this is the fourth home loan these guys have had. Mm. They haven't paid any closing costs on any of the refinances Got and their rate now a point and a quarter cheaper than what they started with. Yeah. So is it, is it normal or are there a lot of lenders that offer no closing costs ago at all for refinancing? Is that pretty common? I would say about three quarters to 80% of my lenders offer it on most transactions right now. Got it. Right now at this the rate, current economy. The rate higher than what they'll offer if you're willing to pay. But again, if that higher rate is still a lot lower than what you're paying, you should at least take that. Got it. And got you can calculate okay. out. Now, here's a reason why you might want to pay closing costs. Let's say you're nearing retirement and you're making a lot of money right now, but you won't be making money in the future. So this might be the last time you can qualify to refinance. Oh, okay. One, yeah. one of the things that's come out since the last financial crisis is in Dodd-Frank, they instituted what they call the ability to repay rule. So mm -hmm. it's against the law for someone to loan you money on your home if they don't have a way to verify you have the way to make those payments. Mm, okay. Which usually means they use your tax returns. And so, or for example, let's say you know you're going to be quitting your job because you're going to start your own company. 
if you if you start up a company, you're probably a couple of years away from paying yourself anything, mm. and you need two years of profitability to have income that the lenders are going to use to qualify you. So you might be thinking down the road, it's going to be five or 10 years before I can even show enough income to qualify again. So I want that payment to be as low as possible. There are reasons to do it, um, but not, not for most people most of the time. Yeah. So for most people, I mean, you can just like, let's say it costs you, you know, 10 grand or at least to, for the initial closing cost. But then, then let's say it's 4%, whatever. So they don't have to worry because later on they can just refi. If the market goes down, then they can re, it doesn't cost them anything anyway. Then they can keep refinancing if the mortgage interest goes down, right? Because it doesn't cost Correct. them anything, like you said. Okay. So, um, okay. So I, I know you talk about this. I was like, how can, tax pros make money by providing mortgages for their clients. Like what do you mean by providing okay. mortgages? Like me, so like, here's what like I do. okay. This is one of the things that I got patented. Mm -hmm. um, and I came up with this idea in 1998 mm -hmm. um, where I, I think, you know, that paying a referral fee on mortgages is against the law. Mm. Um, okay. If, if you as a financial professional receive your referral fee from a mortgage company for a residential, oh, home, okay. you can go to jail they can uh, go to jail. But there's, the, okay. Yeah, the, referral fees, a referral fee is illegal when it but comes for to- But realtors, there are, re, there are referral realtors fees. Realtors can pay, okay. So same law, RESPA, it applies to the transaction. Mm -hmm. But the National Association of Realtors, they are really good at lobbying. <laughs> so they have a carve out to where licensed real estate agents- Yeah or licensed real estate brokers yeah. can pay a referral fee to another licensed real estate broker, literally just for a name and phone number. Mm. And that's legal, but it's disclosed in the transaction. And so you can see it on the closing statement, <laughs> but it's completely legal. Yeah. But, you know, one of my best friends um, owns a mortgage company up on the foothills and he sent me a transaction that he can't do because he doesn't have a lender for it and didn't want to do it. So I did it. Yeah. I cannot pay him a referral fee. Um, even though we're both real estate brokers because mm -hmm. the mortgage transaction is, is something that mm -hmm. is absolutely, you cannot share any of those fees. You can't pay a referral yeah. fee. You can't split fees. You can't do any of that. Yep. Yeah. So, so, so how can we make I money? What I do for the tax pros mm -hmm. is I teach them how to be a loan originator. I help them okay. get the licenses they need. Okay. And I pay them for providing the home loan to their clients. And so what they do is, if an, let's say an average um, independent CPA has 300 clients, mm -hmm. okay? Any given year, even when we're not in this kind of a market, mm -hmm. in any given year, probably 30 to 45 of them are going to get some kind of a real, real estate mm -hmm. finance transaction. Yeah. They're going to buy or sell. They're going to need cash out. They're going to want to lower their interest rate. They're going to have a loan that comes due. That's going to happen to 10 to 15% of his clients every single year, no matter what. Yep. And so what I tell them is talk to your clients, tell them you're doing this, tell them you'll track their interest rate with our patented rate tracking system. Mm -hmm. And that whenever they can save money and not pay any closing costs, you're going to tell them. Mm -hmm. And what I also tell them is if every time interest rate drops, you save them another $150 a month, they're never going to try to replace you with TurboTax. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And we pay them good money for doing it. Um, since 1999, when that became legal in California for CPAs, they got deregulated as to receiving commissioned income. Um, 
we've paid out about $15 million in commissions to those independent agents for doing this with their clients. And so they're licensed as my agents and it's fantastic money. And the systems that I wrote to make this happen help them do so many of the steps that it only takes them about an hour to do that work. And we pay them a half a percent of the loan amount. So if they do a $500,000 refinance for their clients, that's a $2,500 commission when it's done. Yeah, so if they're interested, how, how does that work if they want to be a loan originator? So they have to get licensed and we can walk them through that. Uh, what kind of license? Um, in California, you need the Department of Real Estate salesperson license, and then you have to get the NMLS endorsement to that license. Um, okay. In Utah, they just need to get the NMLS endorsement. Okay, it's, so it's it's not the real estate license. It's, it it's, is a real estate license. Oh, so if, if I'm a real, real estate plus okay. the NMLS. Okay, so if I become a realtor, I can do loan originator. I can I can offer that. Um, if you become a real estate agent and yeah, hang your license with my company, if you became a realtor, um, you couldn't necessarily because I'd have to pay your broker, not you. Um, okay. So you have to be my agent for me to pay you. Okay. Got but it. Yeah, Got you get the real estate license. You get the NMLS endorsement to that license. Mm -hmm. And you can literally type in the information on seven screens, collect some data, do some educating for your clients, mm -hmm. be there for them. Mm -hmm. and and look out for their best interests yeah. and um you can get paid good money for doing that got it got it. wow you you have such a ton of knowledge Russell. i love it so so yeah i mean um okay so we're almost at the hour so like do you have anything um else you want to share with people like you know regarding the mortgages like um i guess if people um you know i guess want yeah to, yeah this is something i've been harping on a lot i'm sure you've mm -hmm. seen videos from me talking about this. This has nothing to do with my business, but because I have so much experience with credit, this is like a crusade that I'm on. <laughs> I tell people that they should opt out of pre-screened credit offers. Uh, the reason being, a lot of those offers that they're being given, that they get in the mail, they're always bad. You know, when I get stuff in the mail from, from places saying you can get this money, you can get that money, a lot of times all it is is a bait and switch. They want you to call in so they can trick you into signing up for debt relief. And I have even seen CPAs calling those numbers, getting tricked into signing up for debt relief, which ruins their credit for years to come. Uh, and so yeah. what I tell people is go to optoutprescreen.com. That's the website that Equifax, Experian, and TransUnion had to establish um, mm -hmm. to make it so that that they can't sell your information if you opt out of it. That's what they're doing. They're selling your information to people that are going to try to rip you off. I just think that's wrong. Yeah. So that's that's just a side note that I tell just about everybody. Um, yeah. yeah. That, Some, that doesn't have anything really to do with my business. But yeah. what were you going to say? Oh, no. I Someone just made a comment. Um, actually, this is Michonne. I'm not sure why her name is not showing up. She said, I don't understand the integrity of when a realtor represents the buyer but works for a company who has another realtor who represents the seller. How does that work? And they not talk to each other about the transaction? Okay. So when it comes to dual representation, um, again, I, I actually am a realtor but I don't really do anything with that portion of my license. Um, but if two salespersons work for the same realtor, 
technically the contract isn't with the sales agent it's with the broker the broker is the key to making everything happen the the sales agents don't have permission to work without the broker's blessing so if two agents in the same office are representing both sides of the transaction technically that's dual agency on behalf of the broker mm -hmm. um in my experience in the reputable shops those agents don't share information back and forth as a matter of fact if let's say they have a home that's gone pending but it's not public yet because it hasn't closed they won't even share the information about what the sales price is or what was negotiated what the terms are until after it's closed um, mm -hmm. the ones that are ethical really take the responsibility seriously to not be sharing information they're not supposed to mm -hmm. now if you're working with the same agent for both the buy side and the sell side that gets more complicated because that agent has to kind of step back and not be as aggressive in telling both sides what to do and what to ask for what they can do because they have to be completely impartial mm -hmm. and not share any confidential information here you know, they can't say i happen to know that seller will sell for fifty thousand dollars less they can't say exactly. that even if the seller has told them that they would do that um but yeah it to, to answer the user's question it is possible but it's more likely that if you're dealing with two different agents that do a lot of business um mm -hmm. they're going to be taking it very seriously because of the repercussions and you know it's a really good living for people that have built up that business, but it takes them years to do it. And yeah. they don't want to risk that over a single transaction. Got it. Okay. Thank you for that, Russell. Thanks for the good question. Okay. So Russell, why don't you tell people how can they find you? Like where do you hang out most of the time? Okay. So you can find me on LinkedIn. Um, my LinkedIn name is Russell McDonald. I'll tag so, you so people can uh, find perfect. Um, So. I'm also on, I'm on all the social medias. Um, so you can find me on Instagram and, and Twitter at either YMAC Capital or Tradmore Mortgage is my usernames there. And when we go on this, I'll type in all the information in one of the comments yeah. Yeah. on the yeah. video. Um, so here's what's happened. Can I tell you a brief story here? Yeah, sure, go ahead. So, I started at this company in 1990 helping with the computers mm -hmm. no 1991 helping with the computers and then i got licensed in 1992. yeah and i invented all the systems they've used to make their money for most of the last 30 years mm -hmm. um, and did a lot of the other things um in 2015 the founders decided to retire and i was passed over to inherit the company they gave it to my little brother and the owner of the other the son of the other owner so they took over in 2015 january 2015 and then three years later, they fired me. Oh. oh. Okay. See ya. So they they fired me. And mm -hmm. so I started another mortgage company with my wife. Mm -hmm. Okay. That's Tradmore. That's where you probably see most of my stuff because up until recently, that was the focus of my business was Tradmore. Yep. Then May 1st this year, I bought them out and took over the old company, which is about 20 times as big as my new one. So now I'm running two different mortgage companies because what happened is my brother and his partner decided they realized they didn't like running a company. Yeah. It, it's hard. And, and 
a lot of the stuff that I was doing, I didn't do for them anymore once they kicked me out the door, obviously. And they just, it wasn't working for them. And so mm -hmm. my brother's looking for a job in tech because he was originally hired. I hired him originally to be the IT manager for us. Mm -hmm. And his partner's gone back to school and is going to get an MBA and think he's going to get a better position that way. So literally May 1st, I took over this company in the middle of all this going on. Yeah. And I'm in the process right now of trying to regrow the CPA portion of the business or not just CPAs, any tax professionals or financial planners, this works really well for them. Got it. Got it. Okay. Well, that, that makes sense. So that's, so why, that's why my social media is so spread out is <laughs> all the stuff I've done for Tradmore doesn't really work. Nobody knows who Tradmore is. It's only been around for a couple of years and it doesn't have the penetration, YMAC Capital has been around for 30 years. And we've worked with more than 500 different independent CPAs and financial planners over the years. And you know, at one point we had six offices. Um, now we're consolidated here in the Bay Area, but we're starting to grow out again. Mm -hmm. So I'm in the process right now of building social media channels for YMAC Capital. And one of the things that one of my coaches has said is that I need to build my own channel independent of the companies and then end up hiring other people to to grow the different needs of the company channels so Got that's it. where i'm at right now okay cool yeah that's that's good to know yeah you you have a lot going on russell and then i love that you're always continuously trying to huh it's crazy everything that's going on right now. That's that's good. That a, a busy business is a thriving business, though. So. <laughs> the last six months of this year are going to make my best year ever, and I've been in business for thirty years. So I, good. I'm really excited about the stuff that we have going on right now. Awesome. That's that's very very good. Yeah. So um yeah, Russell, just um um yeah, just just stay on after this. So I am. Um, thank you so much for joining. I really appreciate this. I learned a lot, and then I hope everyone learned a lot as well. Like uh, we got a lot of good questions. So thank you so much, everyone, for joining. Thank you for listening to my podcast episode. Please feel free to leave a review and follow me on LinkedIn. You can find me by my full name, Christine Tay. That's T-E-H. I am also on Instagram and YouTube under my company name, Tay Financial Coaching. You can check my services and LinkedIn online course by going to my website at www.tayfinancialcoaching.com. I will see you on the next episode. Thank you.